I'd like to let you know that Aussie Meted is sponsored by OPC Health, an Australian supplier of prosthetics, orthotics, clinic equipment, compression garments, rehabilitation devices for doctors, physiotherapists, orthotists, podiatrists and hand therapists. If you'd like to know what OPC Health offers, visit opchealth.com.au and view their range online. G'day and welcome to the Aussie Med Ed, the Australian Medical Education Podcast, where we get to interview specialists in a variety of medical areas, asking their opinion on their certain conditions, obtaining their insight into how they diagnose and treat that condition. In these COVID times, it's a way of replacing the relaxed discussion around the hospital by allowing the listener to put forward questions to be answered or addressed on their behalf. I hope you enjoyed the whole program. Welcome once again to Aussie Med Ed. And in this edition, we get to speak to Dr. Glenn Benvenist, consultant vascular surgeon at the Queen Elizabeth and Royal Adelaide Hospital with many years of experience in both t- treating both varicose veins, aortic aneurysms and other vascular abnormalities. He's going to give us his experience in treating aortic aneurysms and varicose veins as well as about his experience about atherosclerosis. Not only will this information be useful for the general practitioner seeing a patient on a regular basis but also for the medical student revising for their exams or preparing for their OSCE examination. I'm Gavin Nyman, an orthopedic surgeon based in Adelaide in South Australia. I'm the host of this podcast. I'd like to begin this podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land which this podcast has been produced and pay my respects to the elders both past and present. Now, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. Glenn Benvenist, vascular surgeon from the Royal Adelaide Hospital with many years of vascular experience. He's going to talk to us about aortic aneurysms and other vascular disorders. Welcome, Glenn Benvenist. Thank you very much for coming on Aussie Med Ed. It's great to have you here. Um, I believe you're going to talk to us about aneurysms and atherosclerosis and varicose veins. This is a great topic and an excellent one for medical students and GPs alike. Now, let's start off with aortic aneurysms. How would you how would you define them? How would you classify them, the site of occurrence, etc.? Okay, well, um, the, the ancient Greeks hit the nail on the head. They uh, realised that an aneurysm is a swelling of an artery which if punctured bleeds profusely. So that, that's pretty much as it goes. Uh, you can get aneurysms anywhere in the arterial system. Cerebral aneurysms are congenital, quite small, and, and difficult to, obviously difficult to treat. We see them as, as vascular surgeons. We see them in, in the aorta. That's the main place. But they can occur in the femoral arteries, the popliteal arteries, uh, pretty much anywhere. Is there any particular one that occurs most commonly? Is it the abdominal aortic area or is it uh, cerebral the most more common? Now the um, inf- infrarenal uh, abdominal aortic aneurysm, that's the tri- triple A, that's the, that's the common one. said to occur in about 4 to 5% of males over the age of 70 in our, in our society. What are the associated factors for causation apart from males? Is it uh, high blood pressure or atherosclerosis or both? Well, there's, there's controversy about uh, whether it's a, it's a, a collagen weakness or atherosclerosis. I mean, most of us believe it's a variation of atherosclerosis. The, the, the common term for that is hardening of the arteries, and usually arteries uh, block off and calcify. But for some reason, in these patients, the uh, wall of the aortic uh, of the aorta weakens, and uh, as, as it's under high pressure, it continues to expand. If it was a collagen dis- disorder, would it be more likely to be occurring in people with like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and things like that as well? Oh, it does, but that's uh, that, that's fairly rare. Marfan's and, and those sort of collagen sort of pretty rare. The, the the typical aneurysm patient that we see is, um, as we said, an elderly male. They're almost always hypertensive. They're reformed smokers. 
surprisingly very few diabetics, but uh, you know, by the, by the time they get diagnosed with aneurysm, they've usually had coronary artery disease, either stenting or, or, or bypass surgery. So that's the typical picture. So high blood pressure and, and the smoke, reform smoking implies smoking is a factor as well, is it? I think so, yeah. They're, they're the, the, the main factors for atherosclerosis are, are smoking, blood pressure, diabetes, um, elevated cholesterol levels, and family history. And how would they usually present? Is it incidental diagnosis or is it, do they present with a lump in their abdomen? Um, we, we did a, a screening survey down in the southeast and uh, we wrote an article on a paper we called AAA, the silent killer, because the aneurysms tend to be asymptomatic. So patients often don't even know they've got them. They slowly enlarge and uh, once they get past a certain size, they, they can rupture. Uh, and by that stage, it's probably too late to, or it's quite often too late to do anything about it. What is the critical size you need to keep an eye on them then? Is it, uh, I, I remember the number of five centimetres being an important figure. Yeah, that's, that's a $64 question. Um, I mean, I, I speak to medical students, how can we work out what the um, at what size they rupture? The, the, the issue is that it's, um, it, it, we can draw a probability curve, but like all probability curves, there's no zero and there's no 100%. We from autopsy studies and uh, from people that have ruptured, we reckon that from five centimet- from maximum diameter of five centimetres onwards, rupture can occur. I said, having said that, I've seen aneurysms under five centimetres rupture and I've seen you know, 10, 11, 12 centimetre aneurysms that haven't ruptured. So if you see someone with a presentation of an aneurysm which is, say, under five centimetres, how often should you observe them or, or uh, investigate them? My advice to... Um, GPs and other specialists who pick up these aneurysms, I mean, they're usually found because patients have a scan, ultrasound, CAT scan, MRI, for, for some other reason, and the aneurysm is detected. My suggestion is that they, they should be referred to a vascular surgeon who can then explain what the situation is. Most patients um, freak out when they get told they've got an aortic aneurysm uh, that may burst. So having a, a discussion with a vascular surgeon who can put it all in perspective and explain that they don't have to wrap themselves up in cotton wool and uh, and, and can organise a surveillance program. My routine is to do, a, do an ultrasound every six months. I find that way the patients don't get lost. The, the rate of um, increase of aneurysms is approximately one to two millimetres a year. So if you had a patient with a, say, a, say a 3.5 centimetre aneurysm, you could argue that it would be 10 years before it's big enough to fit. But, um, in, in some patients, the, that increase can can be much more rapid and therefore they may need to be treated. I presume it's important to keep an eye on their blood pressure and talk about stopping smoking and other factors as well. Yeah, that, that, that goes without saying that, um, you know, they, they, they should have uh, all those things. Is there any uh, group or thoughts, a group of people such as uh, family history of aneurysms that need to be kept an eye on, such as you'd see with polyps with colorectal cancer? There is a, a familial predisposition. So we tell our um, aneurysm patients that they should notify their, their siblings, their male, um, male siblings, and um, also they should tell their, their children that they have a family history of aneurysms and, then, and probably mid to late 50s, their children ought to have a, a, an ultrasound scan. 
And I always wondered about whether these aneurysms could cause some arterial blockage to the vessels of supplying the, say, the small bowel or large bowel. Does, does it cause any issues like that? And are we just lucky it occurs in an area where it doesn't? Surprisingly, no. Um, the Most of the bowel is supplied from above the renal arteries. And as I said, these aneurysms tend to be asymptomatic. They very, very rarely, you'd think they would embolise. You, you have this great big sack, it's often full of clot and uh, rubbish, but uh, they just tend to sit there and, you know, I'd say 98% are just asymptomatic. Okay, once you do decide to treat them, how do you actually treat them nowadays? Well, again, that's, uh, it's been a revolution. You can imagine replacing the the aorta with a, um, a with a graft is a huge operation. You need a laparotomy, shift all the small bowel out the way, you need to clamp the aorta, which puts enormous back pressure on the heart. Uh, the graft has to be stitched in place. It, it is a, it's a big physiological insult. And in fact, um, an anaesthetist who does a lot of vascular work talked about uh, the physiological stress of having an aneurysm, open aneurysm repair, and he likened it to running a marathon, the blood loss, the you know, muscle damage, strain on the heart. So the mortality of that sort of surgery is around about five, in the best sense, you know, at least 5%. And that's in patients who are screened and patients obviously with angina, renal failure, et cetera, tended to be excluded. So the 5% mortality in patients who we thought were, were fit and well. The revolution has been the ability to stent these aneurysms. And just as uh, someone who has coronary artery disease can be offered a stent where they have a needle in the groin, stent is placed in the coronary artery and they go home the next day, as opposed to having their chest opened and bypass surgery, which involves few days in intensive care and you know, weeks, 10 days in hospital, you know, months to get over it. In the same way, an open aneurysm repair not only has that high mortality, but it's a, it's a long, drawn-out procedure. We, we can put stents up through the femoral artery and uh, that can be done in patients with heart disease, kidney disease, and uh, really they don't go home the next day, but you know, it's usually within two or three days. And the mortality rate, doing it that way is sort of 1% or less. The clever part, the technology is, is, is putting that in, in a long, in a small catheter which can be directed up into the aorta and then, then released in place. The, the stents need to be um, measured. They, 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 they fit in place because they're the, the right diameter and they expand against the wall. So it, 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 it is amazing technology. And do you need to stay on anticoagulation the rest of your life after having one of those stents? No, not the aorta. You know, it's a, it's a big tube. You know, so we're talking twenty-five, thirty millimeters in diameter, and you've got you know four or four liters a minute going through it. So, so you don't need you don't need anticoagulation to to keep that open. What you do need is is lifelong surveillance because the if you think about it, the aneurysm sac is still there. The stent is inside the sac. So if the aorta or the iliac, the bubble and below the stent, increase in size, as they can do, uh, blood can then track back into the sac. It's, and certainly with some of the earlier um, stents, 
the technology wasn't uh, as good as it is today and patients needed other procedures. But, but again, they're relatively minor procedures. And can you do stents and stents? Could you revise it to a larger stent should the, the uh, aneurysm leak around it? Absolutely. We, we just monitor them and um, if they develop an aneurysm you know, lower down, we just put a stent in. So how often would you do an open procedure nowadays with the use of these stents probably taking over? I haven't done one for four or five years. In some, some places are geared up. So we, we, have a, we have code stroke in our hospitals. If someone arrives with a stroke, they have an MRI scan instantly. They have a you know, radiologist on call who can fish out clots, stents, stenosis, and whatever. In some places of the world, they treat pretty much all ruptured aneurysms in the same way. The, the patient hits the emergency department. They have a, a CAT scan on the spot. They have a hybrid theatre where they can put an occlusion balloon in the aorta to control the hypotension. They have a full range of grafts ready and um, patients are standard. I've, I've standard a couple of ruptures that just happened to turn up at the right time you know, before an elective list. And it's, it's unbelievable to see a patient with a rupture aneurysm sitting up in bed the next day having breakfast asking when they can go home. Truly amazing. Very, very different from seeing an open one, which I remember seeing as a medical student. So. Open uh, surgery for ruptures uh, carries about a 50% mortality. I mean, if you think about it, the patients are turning up basically behind the eight ball. They've already lost a significant amount of blood. And we're talking about people in their 70s and 80s, um, you know, who aren't, aren't exactly athletes. What about the, the aneurysms in other areas, such as the arch of the aorta and dissecting aneurysms? How do they vary compared to the standard intrarenal ones? They're, they're much less common. The pretty hard to, to work out why, but um, obviously the, when the aorta comes out of the heart, it's a, it's, a, it's a sturdier vessel. If you think about it, it's like an irrigation system. So close to the pump, it's, um, it's stronger and uh, has higher pressure in it. As it works, it works its way down. It gets smaller, and uh, and there's less probably the same pressure, but um, it becomes smaller in diameter. And the, the, the cardiac surgeons tend to deal with with thoracic aneurysms, but they are much much less common than um, the inferior variety, which we see you know all the time. Certainly, I recall one of those as a registrar leading to spinal ischemia. Um, is that's not such an issue, obviously, in the inferior scenario, but the uh, this patient presented with some paraplegia. Is that a uh, presentation you've heard of, or is that a fairly rare, rare diagnosis? It's certainly a complication of repairing a thoracic, a thoracic aortic aneurysm. The um, by the time the aorta gets below the renal arteries, there are lumbar vessels, but um, there's not much spinal cord to supply. Whereas the up, up in the thoracic region, the um, intercostal arteries. Are the major supply of the spinal cord, so so repairing a thoracic aneurysm does have a, a high paraplegia rate. Interestingly, it's a, it, it's much less when you put a, a stent inside the the artery. But the complicating feature there there is that the thoracic aorta has the superior mesenteric artery and the celiac artery, and it's not a, not always a simple thing to do. Right, so there's a risk of bowel ischemia in those as well, obviously. Absolutely, yeah. Excellent. What about your thoughts about atherosclerosis? I mean, what, what's the current thinking about causation and how well it's been helped by the use of statins and other medications nowadays? Uh, a malignant disease 
is a disorder of cellular growth, which is essentially incurable, spreads to other parts of the body, and eventually kills the patient in broad terms. If we if we cross out uh, malignant disease and put atherosclerosis, it's not a disorder of cellular growth. It's a degenerative disease of arteries. It's incurable. In a, in a sense, it spreads to other parts of the body and it eventually kills a patient. So if someone has coronary artery disease that's due to atherosclerosis, they are likely to get atherosclerosis affecting the vessels in their legs, up to the brain, really anywhere in the body. And so one way of thinking about the treatment of atherosclerosis is you've got a malignant disease, and if they've got a blockage in the femoral artery, that's like a secondary deposit. So we can treat the symptoms of that secondary deposit, which may be inability to walk or ischemic ties, but that's not going to affect the overall disease. It's like treating a secondary, and we can expect that further problems will occur. We can modify some of the risk factors. I mean, the number one cause of atherosclerosis is, is smoking, followed by hypertension, diabetes, and elevated cholesterol levels. What about varicose veins? We're moving on to that area. Um, how do you uh, how do you actually treat these? I mean, it's a very common condition. I believe it's quite. I'd like to let you know that Aussie Media is supported by HealthShare. HealthShare is a digital health company that provides solutions for patients, GPs and specialists across Australia. Two of HealthShare products are Better Consult, a pre-consultation questionnaire that allows GPs to know a patient's agenda before the consult begins, as well as HealthShare's Specialist Referrals Directory, a specialist and allied health directory helping GPs find the right specialist. Congenital as well, well um, or familial factors. And uh, are they important? I mean, do they have to be treated if they're not causing any symptoms? We spend our lives sitting and standing. So blood gets pumped down to our feet and then it's got to go back uphill to back to the heart to, to, go, to go around. So blood can do lots of things, but it can't defy gravity. So the way blood goes uphill uh, from our feet back to, the, back to the heart is that the veins in the leg have a series of one-way valves. Very simple things. Blood can go up, but it can't go backwards. So people get various veins because they have a genetic weakness in those valves or the vein wall. And if the valve doesn't meet, then instead of all the blood going up, some falls back, which leads to increased pressure and successively more more valves break down and the, the veins get bigger and bigger. The attitude towards veins is that it's just a, a cosmetic, but when, when you have blood moving up and down on the, on the spot, in a sense, there's a potential for it to clot. So varicose veins can lead to thrombophobitis, which is not dangerous, but it's um, terribly uncomfortable. Blood tends to leak out of these varicose veins, which gives people swelling a bit on their feet. The red cells leak out, and that gives that typical brown staining that um, you see in people who have had varicose veins for many years. White cells leak out, and that causes uh, inflammation and irritation of the skin. And ultimately, they can get they can get ulcers because the, the skin becomes locally ischemic. So the varicose can cause ulcers. So what I tell the patients is, you've got a condition which will never get better by itself, will continue to get worse. Or the other thing that they, they can do is bleed. If they, if you puncture them, they they can bleed. They got they'll get bigger. They can clot. They can bleed. They can cause skin damage, which 
starts off as eczema, um, discoloration, and may end up as ulceration, and it's easy to fix. Are there any varicose veins that you would leave leave alone? I mean, are the very minor ones worth treating? As well, a, a, a true varicose vein is a subcutaneous vein which is enlarged, fortuitous, and dilated. People often talk about their varicose veins, but what they're talking about are capillaries in the skin, little spider veins. That's a different ball game. They're, they're, they are uh, dilated capillaries, and they are they are purely cosmetic. So people go and have those injected, but it, it's not a it's not a medical issue. Lots of different ways of treating varicose veins, uh, ranging from surgery through to injections, uh, laser, all sorts of things. They all all have a place, and in a sense, people will say, "What's the best treatment for varicose veins?" That's like saying, "What's the best treatment for cancer?" You know, is it chemotherapy, radiotherapy, or or surgery? And if someone asks that question, you say, "Well, of course, it depends on what cancer you're talking about and where it is, and primary, secondary, all the rest of it." So when we say people tend to about lump varicose veins into one sort of one sort of group, but in fact, there's there's a whole variety. It depends where they come from, whether the deep veins are affected, junctions are affected, etc. So you need to need to assess assess patients clinically and and with ultrasound. So, so what's your assessment technique for for doing them? How would a medical student approach it, or a GP approach a person with varicose veins, and so in order to stage it and then determine what treatment options to offer? Well, I think the first is a, is the history, work out what what the issues are, examine them. If they've got uh, large veins, then um, they need to be assessed with with duplex with a duplex scanner which will test for incompetence. It tests the, the competency of the, the, the one-way valves within the, uh, within the veins, and that gives you an idea of where it's all coming from. But certainly patients with, with significant varices you know, should be treated. The veins that are involved, is it really the long saphenous of the main vein and, and branches off that, or are there other particular veins we need to know the names of to be aware of? The great saphenous strain probably 75% of the leg, but there's a, the lesser saphenous or short saphenous posterior calf. But you can have isolated veins. So really any of any of the veins in the leg can become can become varicose. And which ones would you inject and which ones would you offer surgery for? Oh, it depends on, the, on the, the size and the number of the veins. It depends on the patient. You know, with the active young women that have families, you know, want to get it all over and done with. Elderly patients that have got other, other risk factors we can inject. You really need to tailor the treatment to the patient and, uh, and what, what, what they've got. You, you can't, can't just say this is, this is a one treatment for everybody. And the, and the injections today nowadays are predominantly uh, saline you tend to use or what, uh, what would you inject it with if you were injecting them? I use, use saline for um, superficial Pharisees, there are there are other agents which you can use to to block off the the long saphenous itself. And how important is it to find the perforators? Um, that used to be it was a big big thing about a few few years ago. Looking at the perforators, is that really important, or is it more? No, not not, not really. I mean, if a perforator is 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 the problem, uh, it'll have varicose veins attached to it. So if you treat those varicose veins by default, you treat the perforator. And for the more serious one, do you do any stripping nowadays, or do you just do purely high ties? Well, they used to they used to think that by by stripping the long saphenous, you cured patients. But uh, if you take a vein out, blood automatically goes somewhere else. So what I you know, patients will often say to me, "Doctor, will the veins come back?" 
they get a vein, the blood automatically goes somewhere else. So in the in the past, patients were told they had a high ligation and their long saphenous was stripped and they were cured. Of course, they'd come back after a baby or two with more veins, and you know they were reluctant to go back because the surgeon told them they were cured. Uh, when in fact you can't cure them, I tell patients, well, you can fix what you've got, but if you get more, come back early, and we can usually inject them rather than to reoperate. I use the analogy of um, sun damaged skin. I said, you know, say if you've had you know a few areas of sun damaged skin burnt off or removed, you know that you keep an eye on it because other parts may have had obviously had the same exposure. They may may have the same problem. And, and also the same thing is a plastic surgeon or dermatologist wouldn't say, oh, well, look, that's not a, um, it's not a skin cancer yet. Come back when it's a skin cancer and then we'll fix it. The treatment's simple. The earlier you do it, the easier it is. And once, once you've got a complication, uh, fixing the veins may not correct it. Interestingly, from what I always thought was not such an important issue, is actually much more of an issue because it causes problems long term and can cause uh, issues with skin breakdown, Absolutely, and it still has this this connotation that it's a, it's just a cosmetic thing. So the use of uh, ultrasound and a specialised approach to assessing a varicose vein really has made a big difference. Huge, huge difference. Look, we've covered a huge amount of area here today, and it's really going to open a few questions uh, for the listener before they can read up on it. Um, look, I really yep. appreciate your time. It's been fantastic. And, uh, okay. Um, thanks, thanks once again for coming on Aussie Med Ed. That's been brilliant. Thanks, thanks again, Glenn. That's really great. More than happy. No worries. No worries. The information provided to you today is designed to complement the information provided to you in your local region and should supplement your readings and teachings in that area. Please don't take it as the only way of treating this condition or assessing a condition, but really as a, one, of, one of various ways of assessing these conditions. Please be also be aware that the information provided today is really just general medical advice and isn't designed to actually be a source of medical information regarding your particular condition. Remember to consult your specialist or medical practitioner if you have concerns about a condition raised in this podcast. Well, thanks once again for listening to our podcast, Aussie Med Ed, or the Australian Medical Education Podcast. I really enjoy hosting this podcast. I hope you find it useful to hear a pragmatic approach to everyday conditions. If you have any questions or information you want to ask about us, or you'd like to put a suggestion for a topic, please don't hesitate to email us at gavin at ed-ed.com.au. Once again, I hope you've enjoyed listening to it and we look forward to hosting it next fortnight when we introduce a new topic. Thank you.